0: Welcome to Library, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me, um, uh, down the road a ways, we have William Annis. Hello. I had to think a little bit on that one. And uh, over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. So, uh, how are you guys doing? I'm oh, I got doing bit of snow. Fine.
1: Yes, Mike is getting, this is what, snowstorm number three for you guys?
2: Something like that. It seems (laughs) like every time we turn around, we're getting ready for another one. And this morning there was nothing, but now there's snow and slush everywhere, so Mm. uh, I guess that's what I get from moving up here.
1: Snow and slush. What a lovely combination. Mm. When I was coming back from uh, a a trip to New York recently, I was in the cab and they had the news on. The the weatherman was uh, predicting that there was going to be a wintry mix of, uh, you know, sleet and snow. And to, immediately I thought wintry mix sounded like a terrible, terrible new flavor of Doritos.
0: So <laughs> that's mm. a
1: common thing, I think. Wintry mix, I, it sounds like a food marketing scheme, not a,
0: weather, <laughs>
1: not, not a really terrible weather condition was what it really is.
0: What, hmm. Well, what's really bad is freezing rain. Freezing rain. Hmm. Yeah. Which we've had plenty of here, so George has had, I'm sure, the experience of trying not to crack open his skull while getting to classes. <laughs> uh, it's fine. I have experience with with ice. I know how to walk on it, so. One thing, I'm going to just give listeners a quick heads up. William is actually recording this episode, and I am on a crappy Linux laptop, so I may sort of cut out a little bit on this episode, because Skype for Linux is not ideal, but uh that's just a uh, just just to to mention it I I may edit out anything that that messes messes things up too much. Hmm.
1: Are we ready? Good to, to know. Move on yeah. to our beautiful topic on of the to day. The, yes,
0: indeed. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and introduce that. So um our topic today is actually much more of a conworldy or a uh a fiction writing topic than it is so much a a conlanging topic. It's you can a lot of the things we're going to talk about you can do without creating any conlangs. But uh just this is something that has come up to me because, you know, I read a lot of fantasy fiction and the they have different degrees of uh describing, you know, the language situation in the world. And often it just seems very simplified, you know, the, there's a few languages that are sort of within their own sort of states or within their own cultures, and it's not so much uh realistic. So we're going to talk about multilingual con worlds and how how to, you know, give the impression of realistic multilingualism when you're writing about a con world and even when you're writing fiction in a con world. So, um The, and one, the, my main point on this is multilingualism tends to be sort of the normal situation. Yep. Uh, put throughout the world. And you would expect even more of it in the, the sort of, um, uh, pre-modern societies that you see in fantasy novels and stuff. Uh, it's the, I think a lot of, um, the, the, the unrealistic portrayal of language in, in a lot of science fiction, fantasy fiction comes from the fact that a lot of it is written by us Americans and America M- is
1: effectively monolingual speakers of English. Yeah.
0: Yeah. America is very surprisingly monolingual, but if you talk about different regions of the world you know talk about going to india or to the philippines or africa anywhere anywhere outside of uh our little corner of the world there's usually quite a few languages spoken in in uh in an area so Mm. we're just going to talk about different things uh that aren't so realistic different ways you can make things more realistic and once again it's this is really a a metafiction type of topic a, and a con type of topic. You don't necessarily have to create any conlangs to take advantage of this advice, but if you are creating conlangs, some of this advice will apply to you as well if you are conlanging within a a con world. Yeah. Um so I don't know who wants to start with uh different points
2: here um, um I have well, f- i'm really I'm really put mine down there, mine are more just uh in my head, so uh you guys can start if you want,
1: yeah, so uh I have a few points, and the first thing I wanna say, just in terms of being a a um linguistically savvy reader of fiction, and I certainly read a lot of fantasy as well as uh science fiction if you name your language old high anything, I will hunt you down like a rabid dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> now now just to explain that just really quickly so very this what uh what william's talking about is people in a lot of fantasy fiction will tend to name a language high blah blah something high mm. high elven or or something like that meaning uh, with the meaning of it being um a higher register or a a, a prestige language But high in the general sense that it's used in linguistics is often uh, – it's often related to old high German, which it's not – it wasn't a prestige dialect, so to to speak. It was just spoken in the mountains. Mm -hmm.
2: It's a
1: geographic (laughs) distinction, yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um, –
1: Old high Elvish to me just sounds like aging hippie elves. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, so it, it's a little bit tricky to to it, it when you when you use that name, it might be it might annoy some people, especially if you're using it in a way that's that's sort of non-standard that way.
1: And by annoying people, they mean annoy me. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's all I wanted to say about that. Just don't do it. Step yeah. back. Um, if there is something that approximates a quote unquote common tongue, it is going to be the result of some kind of imperialism, usually. It could be military, could be economic imperialism, it could simply be economic trade. Um, yeah. But it's important to understand that even then, the language may be very restricted in use.
0: Yeah. The business now,
1: people may be the only people who use it. The local elites may be the only people who use it.
0: Yeah. Just talking a little bit about the common tongue. I think, and I have a point here that the, the common tongue is not a terribly realistic trope as it's presented in a lot of fantasy fiction. Correct. Um, a lot, in a lot of fantasy fiction and, and in a lot of like role playing games, uh, for understandable reason, it's sort of assumed that everybody is, uh, is capable of speaking the, the common tongue. Everyone's bilingual in it. That's not a realistic situation. You know, English, so uh the a common tongue which that term always makes me laugh a little bit because uh you know you when you call a language the common tongue or the common speech the uh, one of the terms for mandarin the native terms putonghua can be translated as common speech so i always think oh all these fantasy worlds they're speaking chinese <laughs> <laughs> hmm. but uh digression aside um english is arguably the most successful lingua franca in the world, but not everyone in the world speaks, speaks it. It True. has a lot of speakers. It has, I think, over a billion speakers. If you count second language speakers, but you can very easily go to a place and find people who can't speak English. Right. And so this idea that you would have a lingua franca that everyone knows and there's no barriers to, um, to, uh, Understanding linguistically, it's convenient for some kinds of stories, but it's not terribly realistic. Right. Um, the common
1: tongue. Picked at like if you have military imperialist adventurers who create a vast empire, it may not be their language that is picked for the lingua franca. They may they may pick up something that's already established, like mm-hmm. Quechua was used by the Incan Empire, even though the Incans themselves, the con- the people at the top, did not speak the language hmm. um, originally. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Romans took over the Levant, they just left Greek in place. Uh, my favorite example is Hungary, which was a huge multicultural um, empire. Um, and for all of their business, they just used Latin. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. um, for um, so quite late, actually. Speaking of China, you know, they were invaded a couple times by, um, you know, outsiders, Mongols, uh, the Mongols and then the Manchus. Both times they ended up running all their administration in, uh, Chinese, in whatever the, 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 uh, the prestige Chinese of, of the time was. So, yep. yep.
1: Um, so that was the, what I wanted to say about the common tongue. Yeah.
0: Um, it's the- definitely sort of just, just something you have to think about, um, doing a little bit, uh, I don't know. Uh, let's actually move on to another thing because okay. I don't really think we have anything sure. else to say on that particular trope. But
1: one interesting thing that might happen in if you have a centralized government or centralized governments is what jobs really are your interpreters doing? Uh huh. Um, they might be doing more than just standing around translating. They might be diplomats. They might be um somehow more involved in the affairs of the government than simply providing translation. Um and then I have a reference here to the Dragoman, which is um why can't I remember? The Turks. Um, yeah. Turkish Empire, um, used them, and they were both diplomats and translators and, and various other sort of minor court stuff. Um, yeah. So you can have a lot of fun with what your translators are, where are they coming from, what class are they coming from, how much power mm-hmm. do they have, all sorts of uh, room for political hanky-panky as possible if you write that kind of novel.
0: It, it seems to make sense for uh, an interpreter or a translator to fill that role of a diplomat or an emissary right. or possibly also be a scribe or something like that. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the, there could be a lot of different things and who becomes interpreters too? like, you know, is it, are, are the people who learn languages part of the priesthood or are they just in the scribe class and, or are they dumb? In the political class to begin with, and then show an interest in learning different languages. That's, sure. there's a whole lot of things sure. you can deal with. The, there's uh, a few, uh, interesting things. Um, let's, let's talk. You have some more points about the world. Um, but, uh, and then I have some t- stuff about characters, but, uh, um, this is, I, I saw it, it, this question here. William that's you said is your is the landscape littered with references to previous languages. Right. Um,
1: if you've got history is there things like Latin? Do you have inscriptions in the landscape in languages people no longer speak mm-hmm. or maybe only a few people speak?
2: I think we might have mentioned this in um in the previous episode, but also place names are very, you know, you can have indigenous languages having place names or, you know, towns, cities, uh, even just geographical features. Sure. Or that are flora and fauna.
1: Mm-hmm. That are, are from a different language altogether.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, a useful thing to do here is... Um, Obviously, most of our audience is going to be creating full conlangs, but it can be useful even if you have full conlangs and you want to have other languages represented. You can just create like a naming language uh, that that just has a little bit of phonology and morphology in order to get place names and personal names and stuff that you can add in to give give things more depth.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um uh, and it might pop uh, up in, in other funny ways. You might have liturgical uses and so forth, the sort of stuff yeah. that we expect of languages like Latin.
2: I was going to say, um, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be like one one civilization, another civilization, or one country, another country in your con world. It could also be like a religious language, or if there's something like Latin, it's not really spoken by any countries anymore, except for, you know, the Vatican. Um, but it could be something that's tied to either the, the church, or maybe a certain class, or certain... On a sect of uh, certain case, lots of options.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: One thing that um that sort of gets to me about um like Game of the the uh, the Song of Ice and Fire series, and there is a good bit of talking about different languages and and fairly realistic in some ways in the way it depicts language diversity. But all of Westeros speaks the common tongue of Westeros. Or if you are north of the wall, there are some people who speak the, the old tongue. Mm-hmm. You don't have – You there's never any mention of any pockets of villages that speak other languages. Now
1: – Right. What is the Westeros equivalent of Basque?
0: Yeah, Ooh. yeah. I, I mean, seriously. Or even like Welsh – you know, mm-hmm. some, some descendant of the old tongue that's spoken in some pocket of first men somewhere, but you don't hear about any of that. Now, possibly part of that may be that, uh, it's all, uh, it's a story all about lords and ladies and they, they only deal with the prestige language. But, you know, it, it, it could be an interesting sort of addition if, if, if Martin had thought about thinking about there may be a, being more languages in Re- Westeros. Sure. And it
1: becomes an opportunity for tension between your characters if somebody has an accent of one of these languages.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's another thing, talking about characters. I have a couple points specifically w- regarding characters. For one, um, a character could speak... Quite a few languages. And this is sort of a case-by-case basis. Uh, What sort of environment are they living in and uh, where they're going? But even a character that's not um, that linguistically inclined, if they live in a very linguistically diverse community, they may speak five or six languages. Really?
1: But... I would guess two or three, but five or six seems like an awful lot.
0: That may be on the outside though. Yeah. Probably mm. two or three is more likely. Yeah. Five and six is, six is is a little bit at the limit of just casually learning it from uh, the environment. And it depends on what your linguistic environment is. Yeah. Um if you're going further than that, it's definitely someone who's focused on language and if it's more than 10 languages it's someone who's sort of obsessed with learning languages so <laughs> hmm. um that's general rules of thumb probably 2 or 3 would be the most common situation for people. Um I'm trying to remember what I was reading in the last few months
1: where I thought that the number of languages people were speaking was a little excessive. I can't remember offhand. Hmm. Yeah. I should have it's, thought it's, to check that.
0: Yeah. Let me revise that a little bit. I think two or three languages would be normal. Yeah. Um depending on the environment. Five or six is like the limit for someone who is learning languages just to get through their daily life. Yeah. And then Further than that, they're, they're, they have some focus. Either they're very highly educated or they're focused on language, uh, in some way. So, uh, that, that, the, those could be very good rules of thumbs. Another thing I wanted to say is, um, I encounter a lot of, like, descriptions of languages from authors who know, didn't really necessarily construct a language. And I'm often not sure what they're describing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of my weirdest one of the weirdest things like um an example in the wise man's fear by uh Patrick Rothfuss who's apparently lives in who apparently lives in Wisconsin by He the does. Way. He does. Yeah. Um <laughs> he described um it's the what's the Swedish ninjas? What's the, what are they called? I have no Swedish ninjas? Well, they're they're like they're matriarchal, fair-haired people, Adem. Okay. Okay, the Adem speak this language, and he talks about the cadence of the language. The The cadence of the word determines something. And, you know, I think about it, and I'm like, is it tone? Is it pitch accent? Is it phonemic stress? What is it? This has the elvish disease. Yes. <laughs>
1: right? Where these sort of vague descriptions are given about this great subtlety and profundity of simple changes in words, you know, turning from, you know, a simple greeting into a deadly insult and that sort of stuff. That's sort of standard fare in fantasy languages of people who are not very – who are sort of superhuman in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I call them the Swedish ninjas because uh, of other – things but they're 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 called the adem but uh the they are like a race of mercenaries but anyway from mm -hmm. this um this uh the the this sort of description i can see where it makes sense though because your characters are not um Reliable narrators in terms of language, necessarily. Right. In fact, even a native speaker will be an unreliable narrator to some degree. Um. And you know, unless they are like a linguist, they're going to be very much an unreliable la- narrator, even if it's their native language you're talking about. So, sure. yeah. you could probably put a lot of the details into an appendix or something if you have a uh, full conlang. And, um but you know. There are – I don't know really – it's something you would have to be really thinking about because it's really a case-by-case basis. But I think you could have ways of showing certain things about the language without um, without getting too technical.
1: Yeah, I – That's another thing that I have on my list here is you probably often in writing these novels, you simply – your readers don't care for the most part. You do not need to come up with full languages. Yeah. But I still think it would be very important – to keep a document about the languages and keep notes in a basic outline about stuff so that you do not screw up um, your own invention. so you keep things straight, especially if you have multiple things going on. Um, mm-hmm. And some authors are able to say a whole lot about language without ever really coming up with a calling a full mm-hmm. what we would consider a full-fledged calling. Frank Herbert can be quite good at this. Um, CJ Cherry is very good at this. Um, and for people who are interested in pull, trying to pull this off, I recommend the Chanur books and mm-hmm. the Foreigner Universe books, especially. The Foreigner Universe are a little unusual because the main character is a linguist or rather an interpreter. Yeah. Um, so that's a little unusual.
0: And that's, that, that's actually another thing is like, um, how relevant if in, in the, on the fiction writing side of this, how relevant is the language of the story? In the Foreigner series, it's very relevant because yes. this mm-hmm. guy is an interpreter and uh, a, a good deal of conflict will, will come of how well he can translate and what he's translating. Yes, how well he speaks um, to the Tevi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was going to say? And in the Chandra
1: books, it's less important. It still comes up because she has such wildly different um, aliens uh-huh. um, that she needs to. She uses some of that to communicate uh, their alienness and to <laughs> explain to to baffle the author, to baffle the reader as much as the other characters are baffled by. Sometimes these, yeah. especially the the methane breathing aliens, are always confusing to people. That which is a weird little convention of science fiction. <laughs> Methane breathing? Yes, if you breathe methane, then you're super crazy. Incomprehensible (laughs) alien. Um, mm-hmm. Pulling this off can be a little tricky, you know, balancing the linguistic detail that your conlanger readers will love, and then bogging things down. Um, C.J. Cherry's lucky because she tends to write what some people call anthropological science fiction, um, where you can get away with this because it's part of the exploration of the world—is talking about the language. Mm-hmm. Not too many books um, are going to be that way, and not too many authors can pull that off successfully.
0: Yeah, it's sort of—it's sort of like you know. If you're writing a fantasy story, mm-hmm. you're not as likely to be really having a character that focuses so much on language. Right. And, you know, it, it really always depends on what the story is, who the characters are and, and, and where things are going, how you would present the language, uh, in the story. So,
1: um, I, go ahead. I was just remembering something.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if we, we can really think of ourselves Uh, as really authorities on fiction writing. I'm an aspiring author, but haven't really published anything. Uh, But I'm just sort of going by things that I've seen and Mm -hmm. ways that I think certain stories could be improved. Mm.
1: One thing I wanted to mention, because it just occurred to me, about multilingualism in America, especially on the West Coast, where there was a great deal of linguistic density, is a lot of the Native American groups who lived there practiced... Exogamy, which meant that they always married out of the tribe um, which meant that very many people had parents who spoke different languages mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we so much so that sometimes we have all of our documentation about some very and en- highly endangered language is coming from somebody who does not consider themselves part of that tribe but simply spoke it because that's what their mom spoke mm-hmm um, or some other relative spoke. So that's another thing to consider in some con, some con worlding is the possibility of different sorts of marriage arrangements, um, making for both interesting social stuff, um, but also interesting linguistic stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's, you know, to what extent all of this becomes relevant enough that you mention it. Right. You know, in a short all, story,
1: none of this matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Like, uh, for all my characters, I have to sort of have noted down what languages they speak, but that's just me. And mm-hmm. whether it shows up in the story just depends on, you know, whether they get a chance to mention it or use it in any way that makes any sense. Yeah. So... And keep uh, notes,
1: keep notes. There's a yes. famous incident um, in the Foreigner Universe books by C.J. Cherry where one word got spelled multiple ways,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> sometimes on different pages. So, um, And her editors had no way to cope with that, so they just put down what she put down. Hmm. Um, so she had to issue a ruling later that the correct spelling yeah. is this.
0: Definitely for the people who do... Uh actual a lot of conlang text in in their books which a lot of the the writers in our audience will be will be doing some actual conlangs in the text uh you want to be very careful that uh before you make that canon uh about you know fixing mistakes and and checking for typos there because no editor will be able to tell you any different
2: <laughs> they won't catch your mistakes <laughs> So if you mistype it there, then it's probably gonna you know, you're the one who knows all about it. Yep.
0: Yeah. And uh, so um I don't know. What else can
2: we, we uh say
0: about this? We hit everything I wanted to hit.
2: Yeah. Uh I think in some way we've hit most of the things I was gonna talk about. Um, you know, you think about what kind of um you could think about if there's any sort of um, disposition towards speakers of that language like if they're thought of as yeah. a, as the elite class or if they're thought of as the more brutish class or I mean, there are lots of different implications that you can weave yeah. in not necessarily saying it out forthright but a lot of things, kind of metalinguistic things that you can work in with using different um, different languages for different casts um, I mispronounced that earlier yes. um, <laughs> sorry, I've been up since five this morning um, Yeah. but yeah, not, so you can do a lot of yeah. different things in that respect um,
0: echoing what William said about old high anything before and also uh, talking about uh, something that I see. Describing a language as guttural is basically meaningless. Yep. <laughs> People describe all sorts of languages as guttural. And it's usually just an indication that that person does not like that language <laughs> for whatever reason. Yep. So, you know. That that's something you know. You you hear the guttural language of the the Dothraki or whatever the the guttural language of whatever uh, whatever group. And do you guys hear that car alarm? Yes. Oh, dear. The very guttural gar- car alarm. <laughs> but and it's like you hear that and you might think sort of throaty or something, but no, it's just like whatever that person doesn't like. I've heard Cantonese described as guttural. That makes no so. sense at all. <laughs> so, the when you're describing thing the these languages, I guess it depends on whether a character is describing it or whether it's in narration and what what type of narration you use, which is much more of a, a writing topic than than this, but uh I don't understand why that stupid car is <laughs> is constantly alive. <along. laughs> How you describe it, you know, will will affect readers' sort of perceptions of that language and of how other characters are perceiving the language. So, um, that's about all, really, I have to say. This may end up being a rather short episode okay. because it was not really a huge topic to cover.
2: And it's really something that not everybody works with. I mean, and you can work with it, like you said, in, in fiction or if you work in sort of any sort of role-playing. Um yeah. But it is kind of a niche, uh, niche thing. I would say people
0: using conlangs for role-playing games probably have to take a totally different tactic, and you it will it. depend on your gaming group. Because I would say most gaming groups, your players are not going to want to learn another
2: language. True. Um, that's where one more the DM, the dungeon the leader of the game might want to make that language for a naming language like you said or something to add flavor to it less so of yeah, a yeah yeah clearly someone needs language. to
1: organize a quick campaign for um, the language creation conference huzzah
0: oh that would be <laughs> that would be excellent i've I've always thought about trying to uh, work out a story that would involve language in a very significant way probably not necessarily making people... Learn languages, but so many D and D campaigns, it's just, you know, whoever you need to talk to speaks common.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, just so that all the characters can, uh, can, uh, talk. But I thought I'm, I always think about, you know, if you had a, uh, role playing campaign with like diplomats or something, hmm. uh, that, you know, they have to use cultural knowledge and, and language skills to solve problems um, but I've never really fully worked out any kind of story storyline that could work for that. But, the, you know, it's interesting because most of the role playing games that are out there, I think, have some mechanic. For determining what languages your characters speak. Yep. And yeah. some of it is very simple. I think with D and D, your starting languages are just determined by your intelligence score and mm-hmm. it's you just, you speak it or you don't and it's binary. And there's no and then, sort of
2: spectrum or anything about how yeah, fluent.
0: Yeah. And, uh, then there's others like, uh, Shadowrun. You have like four levels in a language, but I don't think it differentiates, you know, speaking versus reading or anything like that. So I, mean,
2: mm-hmm. I was just yeah. going to say in D&D there is a there is a skill of linguistics but that's not really the language area. It's a little bit different. Um, really? But, yeah. I um, guess and mm. well, in certain um editions it might be, but um I know that if you you know, have a high linguistics you have a better chance of understanding yeah. a language or but uh, sure, that's not I'm Sure. Say, as character creation.
0: I'm sure that you could have like a knowledge skill that's in linguistics but that that's getting into a specific system of a role playing game. That's a small part of this topic, but I, I, I really would, um, I've, I've thought about how to make good language mechanics that are reasonably representative of real world language skills without being too onerous. Yeah. To deal with. That's always the problem, finding the balance,
1: both in writing and in if you're going to use them in these games, unless you have, <laughs> unless you're running a game with all conlangers, most people don't want to bother probably.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just. Uh,
1: They're much more interested in shooting magic missiles into the dark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, but um, I think really it's more, it, it always depends on the medium and, and it's. I, I find it very appropriate that like the TV and movies are going towards wanting to create actual languages. Cause I think that's the point where it, it really matters the most because it's sort of, a uh, in, in TV and movies, you have an idea of it's only true if the, uh, person watching can, can perceive it. So there it's, it, it's, uh, I think it's more important for them to actually create conlangs and have dialogue in the conlangs. Yeah, I agree. In order, yeah, in and order I think
1: the, the, the producers oh. of the Game of Thrones even mentioned this, right? You know, they just said in the books you can just say and they were speaking Dothraki, but it, that doesn't work quite as well on TV.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. You have to you have to be able to show to the audience that they're speaking Dothraki. You can't tell them in any other way. So they had to make Dothraki in some one way or another. So, um, it's, you know, but you know, there's, there's always, but in any of these cases, there's the balance. Like, I think one reason like video games often have just like ciphers or, or, um, Mm -hmm. relaxes is they just want, they want the language to be, uh, Something that players can easily decode for mm-hmm. the participatory value of that, so they don't really want to make a full
2: language, which can be a valid reason to for doing that. But and you know. they probably don't need it. I mean, like they, if you aren't going to have people speaking about, you know, uh, they're not going to be asking all sorts of questions. They're only be having a very, very narrow dialogue. I mean, just talking mm-hmm. about if you're not interested in having a fully functioning, you know, evolving language like a real one, then. It's just as well for them to sometimes just create gibberish that the systemized gibberish, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And mm. then that, yeah, there's also the, the things like in World of Warcraft, you have this procedurally, <laughs> procedurally generated gibberish yeah. that only serves to prevent factions from talking to each
2: other. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they, I think they figured that out. They figured out in sometimes what, what equaled what and that you could type gibberish in, in your, in the, the plain text, and when it got ciphered over, it would say a message.
0: Really? Um, some
2: people did, so... I don't uh, know, because I, I had heard that they actually used some sort of encryption on that to prevent that kind of I thing. I don't know, they might have uh, after a while, but it was fun because you could, uh, it would show up, so if you had something in a language you didn't speak, it would say, like, you know, whatever language it was in parentheses, and then it would say the, the language after it, so it would say, like, Spanish in parentheses, and then it would say, you know, ¿Dónde está el baño? But I would have fun with it, and I'd put things like Elvish, and then I'd type a line from Lord of the Rings, and the like whoa how did you do that And I'm like, ha, 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 magic yeah. but uh, yeah um anyway oh, another thing i wanted to mention is that another way you could sort of integrate language in there is with code switching and you can use you know certain characters use code switching amongst themselves or maybe when they're speaking in the common tongue of the lingua franca they might have a word or two come come across just like native speakers might you'll have different levels of mixing on that
0: oh that's 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 an interesting sort of character thing that you can do in, in the, um, it may be, that may be a little bit more difficult to do without making the language, Mm. but I, I've seen ways that you can do it. I read one of the foreigner books and that there was a lot of language switching in one scene, but, um, definitely, you know, one of my favorite scenes in game of Thrones, I've mentioned this before, uh, when David was on was this scene, where you have Sir Joris and Raharo talking, and they are code switching the whole time. Mm. And that's really that all that's a very common thing to happen when you have two people who are who speak different languages, but they know each other's languages. Um this this is something that happens with me uh uh with my Chinese friends. We mm-hmm. p- spend most of the time actually speaking English, but uh the conversation can move into Chinese and back again. And they may not know a word or something like that and have to ask me for it or something like that. Um
1: that's going to be really hard to pull off in written fiction, I think.
0: Yeah, it probably will be. Um Especially dealing with single words. You might just have to actually insert the word in there and then find ways to, to translate it for the reader. The, the one of the foreigner books that I read, I forget which one it was, but it was a conversation where, um, he was, he was actually actively translating between like Atevi and uh, maybe the, uh, the ship language and the, the settlers language. Mm-hmm. And it was the, you just had in the taglines in whatever. And, and there were sort of graphical representations of switching languages, but it's, it, it, I could see it being very difficult to write properly. Yeah. Anyway, um do you think we can wrap up this topic?
2: I think yeah. I, I think so. We got a lot of angles.
0: Yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting topic. It's not it's not directly um the a conlang thing. It's more of a fiction thing and a conworlding thing. And we didn't really get the there's surely a whole lot of things with this topic about like writing histories and such that we didn't really get into. But I think, I think this, this uh, episode should provoke some people's thoughts. Um, so uh, I have an email for our feedback sent to uh, conlary at gmail.com uh, from Eusti. And uh, he says, Azul, And he actually has a footnote that's, uh, hello in Lawson. And he says, so I've just got done with the tone episode number 81. And at the end, someone mentioned Bogo Langs, uh, which (laughs) put me in mind of one I had found many moons ago called Franglais, which obviously is French plus English. Anyway, I felt it might merit a look-see, kind of an old site. So the creator might be a bit elusive. So this is him just sort of suggesting this language is to us to feature. We may look at it and, and see about it. I'm trying to think about what Franglais would be. Was it like the Norman stayed in, in, uh,
1: I'm not sure this has the backstory. I took a quick look yeah. before, but I'm not sure it has the backstory. It's just fun. And there's some things about it that seem very weird that I cannot imagine coming out of a normal BOGO process or an alt lang process. Um, so I think yeah. someone just thought it would be amusing for French and English to have a love child. <laughs> And bam, there was. Which is kind of weird and incestuous since English is already so heavily Yeah, it's uh, the English in the first has place.
0: so much French influence already. I'm kind of curious about how that. So we'll look at this. Um, maybe it'll be a future feature. Maybe not. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, we have some other, um, and he also gave us some other links. Uh, I, this is all Franglais stuff, but, uh, yeah. and, uh, so, thank you for that suggestion, and uh, with that, I'm just no, going... No, no,
1: no, 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 you, you're missing the last paragraph, which is most important.
0: Oh, uh, what is the this? The
1: footnote, Azul equals hello in Talosan. I'm speaking, Yeah, I'm I reading letter. letter. Um, I'm a citizen of the kingdom and a member of the C.U.G., the language committee. I've actually been on the show before, though not in person, as I was the person who translated read um, The Telltale Heart on Talosan.com. Yeah. Along with most of the other translations there. So, that was cool.
0: Yeah, that's... that yes thank you for that little note that's yes. uh that's interesting to know it's nice to know
1: uh, that, our, that our episode of Tolosa did not alienate the nation
2: yes most definitely uh
0: and it's cool to know that you know you have people in the in, in Tulasa that are uh interested enough in, in other conlangs to, to keep listening to Conlangery. yeah uh so anyway it, emails come to dot gmail.com and uh we have not been getting as many emails, but we're getting a few more recently. I'm just going to go on to
2: William. What are your final words of wisdom? I have week? no wisdom this week. Mike, do you have anything? Um, basically, just, you know, go forward conlanging. That's about all. <laughs> all right, then I will say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to
0: Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.